I have always wanted to learn how to play the game Mexican Train Dominoes. You know, I, saw, I saw some people playing it at a party once, and it looked kind of cool, looked fun, relatively mindless, which is what I like in a game. So I bought me some Mexican Train Dominoes. But they sat on my shelf for months because I'm not the kind of guy who likes to read rules. So I didn't know how to play the game. Some time ago, a month or two ago, my sister announced to me, she said, well, I've played Mexican trained dominoes, so we broke it out with some other people and we sat around and I quickly discovered she's foggy about the rules for Mexican trained dominoes. So we would reach these impasses where I'd be asking, you, well, is this a legal move? And she'd kind of shrug and then we would do whatever. And I want to tell you, it kind of sucks the joy out of a game, makes it a whole lot less enjoyable if there's ambiguity and confusion and so on. So the Mexican train dominoes went back on my shelf and they'll stay there until somebody can explain to me the rules of the game. God has given us clear rules for living and they're found in his book, the Bible. That's why we're so big on the Bible at Christ Community Church. Now, when I say rules for a living, some of you might have an immediate negative reaction to that. You don't like the word rules. It sounds so restrictive, so legalistic, so demanding, joy-killing. But I just want to remind you who the rules come from, okay? They come from a God who loves us immeasurably. They come from a God who is, who is totally wise and knows what's best for us. They come from a God who, according to the scripture, wants us to experience life to the full. Life to the full. I love, I love what G.K. Chesterton says about God's rules. Chesterton was a famous British author about 100 years ago, beginning of the 20th century. And after he became a Christ follower, he wrote, he said, the more I considered Christianity, the more I found that while it has established a rule and order, the chief aim of that order, listen to this, was to give room for good things to run wild. I love that. You know, the reason God's given us his rules is to put some boundaries in our lives so there would be room for good things to run wild. Now, I want you to keep that in mind over the next three weeks because we're going to be taking a look at God's rules for sexual behavior. I mean, this three-week series focuses specifically on homosexuality, what the Bible says about homosexuality. So it's important as we consider this topic that we, we, we not forget the reason behind God's rules for sexual behavior. He wants to give room for good things to run wild in our lives. Now, some of you are wondering why we would ever do a three-week series on homosexuality. I mean, isn't, isn't this risky business? Aren't there dangers involved in doing a series like this. In fact, if you have your, your program in front of you, turn to the outline and you'll see under the introduction, first thing I'm addressing, dangers involved in this series. Okay. So what kind of dangers am I thinking about? Well, this series is bound to cause some people discomfort you know, just the whole, whole topic. In fact, some people may elect to stay away until the series is over or keep their kids away until they finish that homosexuality series. Then they'll come back. Okay. Other people that might make mad if you're extremely liberal or extremely conservative on this issue you might get angry at points along the way 
You know, another danger involved is, I suppose it could give us a bad reputation in the community or among guests who show up at our services. Any church that does a three-week series on homosexuality must be homophobic, right? And it's still a, a final danger in doing something like this is that I don't have the time to answer every question that a series like this raises. In fact, just a word about time here. I'm going to ask your permission for something. I don't think I've ever asked this before. I'm going to ask your permission to go a few minutes long today because I can't cover the topic otherwise. Now, you all gave permission to the Blackhawks earlier this week, <laughs> game five, to go into two overtimes in order to win. So I promise I am not going to go as long as the Blackhawks did. I'm going to take about six or seven minutes longer than our usual 80-minute service. But it's going to take that long to cover this topic thoroughly. So those are the dangers. I mean, why kick a sleeping dog? Why not leave this topic alone? Let me give you four reasons, four compelling reasons to do this series, the gospel, homosexuality, and the church. First, as I've already said, here at Christ Community Church, we are big on the Bible. The Bible is God's handbook for life. So anybody, anybody who wants to be a Christ follower must hold God's word in high esteem and must agree it's, it's important to follow what it says. You know, Jesus, in his famous Sermon on the Mount, he said this about the Bible, and let me remind you, when he said this, he was only talking about the Old Testament. That was the only Bible he had at the time. So all the Old Testament commands, Jesus says this, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew 5, 19, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You know, I regularly hear people say, Christian people, well, it's not important to, to obey all the rules of the Bible, especially the Old Testament. All you got to do is love God and love people, that's it. Well, what about what Jesus just said that I read to you about obeying all the commands? And, and, and what, is, what does real love look like in relationships with other people? How do you love other people? Well, with regard to sexual behavior, you follow God's commands. That's what real love looks like. That's the first reason we're doing this series. The Bible clearly addresses this topic, and genuine Christ followers, they want to know and they want to obey what the Bible teaches. Second reason for doing the series. This is a hot topic in our culture at large. I mean, we, we can't get away from it. Ignoring it would leave us naive and unequipped to face life in the real world. I mean, homosexuality as a topic, it pops up constantly in movies, in new laws, in school curriculum, in news stories, in celebrity gossip, in the NFL draft, for crying out loud, in family squabbles. So Christ followers must not stick their heads in the sand hoping the issue will go away. It's not going away. We need to deal with it and we need to teach our kids how to deal with it, which leads to a third reason to do the series. For some of us, this is a, a very relevant and poignant and personal topic right now. Maybe you're a parent whose young adult son or daughter has just come out as gay. Or maybe you're a person who's struggling with same-sex attractions or just trying to get a, a handle on sexual identity for yourself. 
Maybe you feel discriminated against because you're gay. Or, or maybe you feel discriminated against because you hold a traditional view of homosexuality. It goes both ways. You want some biblical clarity. What does the Bible teach about this? This is a real live issue to you right now. Fourth reason to do the series. The mission of Christ Community Church is to lead people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. And that means all kinds of people. Which would include people who identify themselves as gay. Friends, we want Christ Community Church to have a huge welcome mat. Right? You know, my, my hope and, and my prayer, I mean, if, if, if we get done with this series and it hasn't helped you to better understand and love and reach out to gays, then I haven't done my job of teaching God's word. Now, that doesn't mean that those of you who may be pro-gay are going to like everything I teach from the Bible. And for that matter, those of you who may be anti-gay are probably not going to like everything in this series either. So let me move to a few ground rules. Ground rules for listening to this series from God's Word together. Uh, ground rule number one, don't nitpick. Okay, I suppose any illustration or story or singular point I make, you could take it apart. You know, but don't, don't do that. Listen to the whole sermon each time. Listen to the, the whole series Okay, yeah, you know, Jesus was full of grace and truth, Scripture says. We want the series to pull, be full of grace and truth. Now, today we're going to park more on the truth side of things. Next week you'll hear more grace side of things. So if you're a truth person, listen to the grace part. If you're a grace person, listen to the truth part. Okay, which leads to the second ground rule. You know, don't check out because you become angry along the way. I mean, don't, 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 check, don't leave mentally. You know, don't leave physically unless you got to go pee, okay? Then we'll let you out. But ser seriously, we live in an angry culture, don't we? Every time I go on somebody's blog and I read the comments, it's like, yikes. I, I cannot believe how angry people are. And the minute you become angry, you stop listening. So, so don't become angry or you won't give God's word a fair hearing. Third, little ground rule here, and that is compare everything I say with the Bible, okay? Because if what I say doesn't match up with God's book, then you are free to ignore it. It's strictly my opinion. If, however, what I say comes from that book and you disagree with it, then you just got to know you're disagreeing with God. This is God's word. Which leads to another thing I wanted to consider in the introduction. I wanted to deal with four objections that people raise against the Bible Say, you know, the Bible should not be our authority when it comes to homosexuality. I, I was going to give you four objections. I don't have the time to do it. So what I did is I left my notes in print at the information counter at all four campuses, and we're going to post them online as well. So I'm not going to answer this question as to how to answer the objections to the Bible. I want to give you the four objections I wanted to raise, though. This is a teaser, so hopefully you'll want to pick up the notes. Objection number one, the Bible was written by fallible authors in ancient times. In other words, how can it possibly speak to the issue of homosexuality today? Second objection, rightness and wrongness are a social construct. They're not determined by the Bible. So what do I mean social construct? I mean, you got to factor in people's personal experiences, sociological studies, government laws. You can't go by just the Bible. How do you respond to that? 
Objection number three. The Bible's wrong about slavery, so how can we trust what it says about homosexuality? That, that's the one I hear more often than any other. So is the Bible wrong about slavery? You've got to pick up my notes. Objection number four. The Bible can be twisted to make it say anything you want it to say. So if you're pro-gay, you'll read it pro-gay. If you're anti-gay, you'll read the Bible anti-gay. Well, I'm now finished with my sermon's introduction. Okay, and it's time to look at what the Bible says about homosexuality. Uh, I've arranged my presentation along the lines of the Bible's overarching story, God's big story, we're calling it. God's big story, as, as it unfolds in Scripture, is it's a rescue story. It's a story of how God rescues us from sin. Now, if he's never rescued you, you can be rescued from the penalty of your sin, which is eternal death. See, when you unplug, when you go your own way and you unplug from God, the giver of life, you die eternally. So God wants to rescue you from that penalty. He also wants to rescue you from the power of your sin on a daily basis. Because sin has a way of being controlling and dominating and tyrannizing. And God wants to save you from that. So this is a rescue story. There are four parts to the story. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. You'll see that in your outline. Unfortunately, we only have time to look at the first two parts of the story today. We're going to cover parts three and four next week. So let me warn you about something. God's big story gets bad before it gets good. It gets bad before it gets good. And I'm going to leave you hanging at the end of today's sermon. I'm going to leave you right after the bad part concludes. And I don't want you walking out of here, though, thinking to yourself that God's big story is all bad, especially with respect to homosexuality, or Christ Community Church's spin on this part of the story is all bad. It gets really, really good. You just got to come back next week, all right? So turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to begin right at the beginning of the Bible. First book of the Bible, first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, we're going to talk about creation. This is part one of God's big story, creation. Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28, and then we're going to drop down into chapter 2. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Drop down to chapter 2, picking it up at verse 20. Okay, now this is a bit retrospective. Chapter 1 talks about the creation of mankind, male and female. Now we're going back to just before God creates the female. So the man gave names to all the livestock, chapter 2, verse 20, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took some of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, or as I like to say, whoa, man. You don't have to read it that way. Uh, for she was taken out of the man, and that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, as, as God creates Adam and Eve, 
there's an emphasis in this story, don't know if you saw this, on their complementary nature. Now, what do I mean by complementary? Well, if you look up the word in a thesaurus, you'll find synonyms like balancing or harmonizing. See, in, in one sense, Adam and Eve are very much like each other. They're both human beings. They're, they're both dramatically different from the animals that Adam has given names to. But in another sense, they're very different. God, God did not give Adam a mirror image of himself as a companion. He was given a she and the he and the she come together and they form a perfect pair. That's how God designed them, to be complementary in nature. Now, why is there complementarity? That's a big word. I'm going to ask you to say it with me in a moment because it's a really important word. Why is their complementarity so important? Say complementarity with me. Complementarity. Good. Didn't hear you guys into Calb, but we'll give you another shot. Complementarity, why is it so important? Several reasons. First, complementarity reflects God's image. Okay, go back to verse 27, chapter 1. It says, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God's image is somehow represented by male and female. Now, wh why does it take two genders to reflect the image of God? Why, why couldn't it be just one gender? Well, if you know what the Bible teaches about God, you know the Bible says it reveals to us a, a God who is three in one. There is diversity in the Godhead. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. And although there's diversity, there's also oneness. There's unity. He's a three in one. He's one God. Now, it's interesting when, when you go to chapter 2, verse 24 that I, I read a moment ago, it speaks of the man and his wife becoming one flesh. But you see, in order for their one fleshness to reflect the image of God, you following this? There's got to be both diversity and unity. See, a, a man and a man can't become one flesh in the sense of reflecting the image of God who's diversity and unity. A woman and a woman can't become a reflection, a one flesh reflection of the image of God because it, it requires both diversity and unity. So complementarity is important because it reflects God's image. Second, complementarity allows for sexual intimacy. It allows for sexual intimacy. Now, let's just start with some basic body part discussion here, okay? You know, God creates man and, women, and woman with complementary body parts, corresponding body parts that fit together for the sake of sexual intimacy. When I was a young boy, my dad would often ask me to help him with a household chore, and I'll never forget the time when he asked me to hand him the male end of the extension cord. <laughs> yeah. Then he explained to me, okay, what that meant. So, and, and I discovered, okay, there needed to be a male and a female. That's how you plug one cord into another. That's how you plug a cord into a wall socket, right? God designs man and woman with complementarity for the sake of sexual intimacy. Their corresponding body parts fit together. Now, some pro-gay advocates say, and this is where I'm going to apologize for my frank sexual language, okay? But I'm going to talk about body parts by name. 
We're in church. God made the body parts. I think it's okay. Okay? Okay. God designed it so that a man's penis fits into a woman's vagina. But some pro-gay advocates say, wait a second, a woman's vagina is not the only human body part into which a man's penis can fit. And so a man can have sexual intimacy with a, another man anally. Doctors would say, yes, the parts fit, but this is very unhealthy because they weren't designed to fit that way. They weren't de- a woman's vagina was meant to receive a man's penis where, where an anus is meant to expel excrement, right? Waste. A woman's vagina is made for the sexual act. It's stuff, it's sturdy material. A man's anus is easily ruptured. Not a healthy thing to do, doctors would say. Now, on a more positive note, God's design for sexual intimacy to be, to be between complementary partners can also be seen in the fact that when the two body parts fit together, oftentimes a man and a woman, listen, they're face to face. They're looking at each other in the eye. See, what God's after is sexual intimacy, not just sexual gratification. One one last thing about sexual intimacy. I want you to note from chapter 2, verse 24 of Genesis that it's only to take place in the context of a committed marriage relationship. It says that the man became one flesh with his what? Say it. Wife is what Genesis 2, verse 24 says. Jesus is going to reiterate that when we get to the New Testament. Complementarity. Third, complementarity makes procreation possible. Take another look at Genesis 1, verse 28. I mean, right after God creates Adam and Eve in his image, he blesses their relationship. You see that, verse 28? And then God gives them some instructions. What are those instructions? Middle of verse 28. Call it out. Be fruitful. Increase in numbers. One of the reasons that God designed the sexual relationship to be between a man and and a woman was for procreation, childbearing. Now, please understand, that's not the only reason, but it's, it's one of the reasons for, for complementarity. Two men can't make a baby. Two women can't make a baby. Now, again, some same-sex advocates, they would object, well, you know, what are you saying about a heterosexual couple, you know, a man and a, and a woman who are infertile? Or, or let's say they get married later in life beyond childbearing years. Or what if they decide not to have children? So are, you, are you discounting their marriage here? Is, is their marriage invalid? No, the issue here is God's design. God designed the sexual union of a man and a woman, a husband and wife, with the potential to produce children. Now, whether or not they do produce children is not the issue. We're talking here about God's design. So, someone has made this point with the helpful analogy of a snowplow. They've said, you know, a snowplow in Florida is no less a snowplow than a snowplow in Alaska. You get the analogy? Okay, a snowplow in Florida may not be used, ever used to move a lot of snow, but by design, it bears the design of a snowplow. Okay, complementarity makes procreation possible even if procreation never happens. Okay, that's the creation part of God's story. There's no mention of homosexuality. In fact, just the opposite. 
the emphasis is on heterosexuality, on complementarity. And that brings us to part two of the story, fall. Okay, creation and then fall. Adam and Eve, if you know the story, they're tempted to disobey the God who made them. They give in, they sin, and their moral fall brings disastrous consequences. The Bible says that every one of us now follows in the footsteps of Adam and Eve. We're all sinners. We all do and say and think things every day that offend a holy God, that violate his righteous standards. In fact, the Bible says we have a sinful nature. We have a sinful nature, which means that sin now comes quite naturally to us. Sin is our bent. It's our ongoing tendency. It's our regular disposition. I have two darling 10-month-old granddaughters. You may have heard about them. Yeah, I got a bazillion more pictures to show you afterwards. <laughs> Let me tell you something about these two cuties. I will never have to teach either one of them how to sin. I won't. They will do it instinctively. Those two little girls... Each have a sinful nature. Now, what is this part of the story, the fall? What does this have to do with homosexuality? Well, friends, we've got to figure out if, if, if a person is same-sex attracted, does that same-sex attraction originate from the first part of God's story, from creation? Or does it originate from the second part of the story, from the fall? Now, pro-gay advocates say, well, you know, same-sex attraction is definitely part of creation. God makes people that way, and so we should celebrate this. Gary Hall is the pastor of the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., arguably the most famous church in the nation's capital. Last October, he preached a sermon in which he said, and I quote, it is not only okay to be gay, bisexual, or transgendered, it is good to be that way because that's the way God made you. That's the way God made you. Now, wait a minute. Where did Pastor Hall get that idea? It doesn't come from the Bible. Now, when I say that, that may be one of the things that makes you, you mad, but I encourage you, look for it. You won't find it. You remember what we learned about God's creation of people a few moments ago? God designed us, sexually speaking, for heterosexual relationships. It's not part of God's creation design, homosexuality, even though you'll hear this fallacy repeated again and again and again in conversations about homosexuality God made people that way. God made people that way. There is nothing in God's word to substantiate that position. Now, if, if I had the time, I would love to go into detail and show you how science backs up the Bible on this score. You know, science gives evidence that homosexuality is not hardwired into people. It's not part of creation design. You know, scientists, for years, they've looked for a homosexual gene. They've never found one. Never Go online. They've never found one. They've done studies of identical twins, hoping to prove that if, if one of the twins is homosexual, then the other will turn out to be homosexual as well, showing that it's genetic. One of the more recent studies was done in Sweden, 2010. 71 Identical twins, in, in, in each case, one of them homosexual, they discovered seven of them 
the other twin was also, also homosexual. And some said, well, that, that's a high incidence. That's 10% of the, of, of, the, of the times. But when you keep in mind that identical twins come from the same egg, that they share the same genes, they're virtually clones of each other, what should the incidence be? 100%, not 10%. Here's another little bit of evidence from science. This is not part of the creation design. Sexual orientation can change. And you heard Heidi's story in that video before the sermon. And she said for, for years she was a lesbian. Now her orientation, she said, is heterosexual. You know, is she lying? Is she deluded? Is she covering something up? I don't think so. Now, please understand, in this series... You will, you will not hear me say that it's always possible to change your orientation, even when you become a Christ follower. That might not happen. So listen carefully. I don't want to frustrate anyone who's saying, you know, I tried to move from this to that, and it didn't happen. So we're, we're going to get down to an explanation of all that eventually. My point right now is simply this. It can change. There are, are many instances where the sexual orientation has changed. What does that show? Well, let me put it to you another way. Have you ever met a former African-American? Have you ever met somebody who used to be Hispanic? They used to be, yeah, they're not. You say, of course not. Race and ethnicity don't change. Why don't they change? Because God made people that way. It's part of their creation design. It's not the same with sexual orientation. It sometimes changes. So if homosexuality doesn't come from the creation part of God's story, it must, listen, it must come from the fall part of the story, and that explains something. Stick with me. You know, I've had same-sex attracted friends tell me, they, they've said, Jim, I did not choose this. I've, I've been oriented this way ever since I was a child, and I believe them. I fully believe them. But remember what I said about us all having a sinful nature, every one of us, thanks to the fall, which means that sin feels quite natural to us? I mean, let me speak for myself for a moment. Lust comes naturally to me. Impatience and anger come naturally to me. Self-centeredness comes naturally to me. This is embarrassing to admit to you. But you know, you're in the same boat with me. Whatever your sins of choice, and I've just revealed to you some of mine, they come naturally to you. Could it be that homosexuality originates not from a person's creation design, but from a person's sinful nature? Is that why it feels so, so natural? Now, if that were the case, if my hypothesis is correct there, then we would expect to see the Bible calling homosexual practices sinful because if it's part of the created order, it'd be good, it'd be celebrated. But not so. If it's part of the sinful nature, then it's an influence that needs to be resisted. Let's see what the Bible says about homosexual practices. I want you to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 13. It's going to be the first time some of you have ever gone to Leviticus, right? Leviticus chapter 18. While we're turning, let me say a couple of things about the texts that we're about to look at. First of all, there are about, depending on who's counting, there are about six to eight or nine texts in the Bible that explicitly 
very strongly prohibit homosexual practices. Now, we're going to have time to just look at two or three of those texts. Okay. It used to be anybody who picked up a Bible and read these texts like the one we're about to look at in Leviticus, they would clearly understand this is something that God's word prohibits. And so, so if you were determined to engage in a homosexual relationship, you'd have to throw out the Bible. Okay? But things are changing. There are, are more and more so-called Christian leaders, Christian authors who are saying, we have misunderstood these passages. Okay? They, they don't prohibit generic homosexuality. What they prohibit are homosexual abuses, homosexual rape, homosexual child molestation, homosexual idolatrous practices like going to the pagan temple and engaging in sex with a temple prostitute who's homosexual and so on. You know, I, I want to tell you these new interpretations are misinterpretations. I'm going to spell some of them out. And we don't have the time to look at all of them, which is why we put together a resource list of books. If you want to do some, some reading on your own, there's a half dozen books on the resource list. You could pick it up at the information counter or get it online. Because I don't want you to be fooled by some of the spin that's been being put on things these days. Second word of introduction... I want you to notice, we look at these passages, that they don't condemn a person's homosexual orientation. See, because of the fall, your, your sexual orientation may have shifted from heterosexual to homosexual. Some of you struggle with that. I, I want you to know the orientation is not a sin until you act upon it. Again, speaking for myself, I have a heterosexual orientation, which means I'm attracted to women. You know, even women who aren't my wife. But that doesn't become a sin until I engage in lust or in pornography or in an adulterous affair. You see the difference? It's an important distinction to make. So let me read the passage, two passages from Leviticus to you. Very short, a couple of verses. Verse 22 of Leviticus 18 says, Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Turn over two chapters. Chapter 20, verse 13 says, If a man has sexual relationships with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They're to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Now, don't these verses seem pretty straightforward to you? Homosexual relationships are sinful, they say. My good friend, Christopher Yuan, we've been buds for a number of years. Uh, Christopher, for a period, was just flamboyantly gay in his lifestyle until he was thrown into prison for dealing drugs on the East Coast. And while he was in prison, he saw a Bible that someone had thrown out in the trash can, and he dug it out, and he began to read it, and he ended up surrendering his life to Jesus Christ. Well, he announced his conversion to the prison chaplain, and the prison chaplain said, that's great, and just so you know, you don't have to give up your homosexual relationships just to follow Christ. And he gave him a book. He said, this book will explain some of those passages that seem to prohibit homosexuality. So Christopher read the book. Didn't quite make sense to him, so he got out his Bible, put the Bible next to the book, and went back and forth and back and forth. And he realized the reinterpretations just didn't cut it, and so he threw out the book and he stuck to the Bible. It's pretty straightforward stuff. So how to 
pro-gay interpreters explain away the verses in Leviticus I just read to you. I'll give you the most common argument. And there are others, but the most common argument goes like this. Well, there are a lot of Old Testament laws that don't apply to our lives today. I mean, what about the Old Testament laws that say we shouldn't eat shellfish or we shouldn't wear clothes that are made from two different kinds of material? Have you had some shrimp scampi lately? Huh? Check the label. Two kinds of material, yeah. See, the prohibition against homosexuality is just another outdated Old Testament law. That sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? But what that... That argument fails to understand is this. There are different kinds of laws in the Old Testament. Some of the laws are meant only for ancient Israel, God's Old Testament people. They're laws intended to set them apart, to remind them of their differentness because God had called them to a special mission to tell the other nations about the one true living God. God didn't want them to compromise with the surrounding nations, so he gave them dietary laws, he gave them clothing laws, all to emphasize, I want you to be different, I want you to be different. Bible scholars call these, these laws ritualistic or ceremonial laws. But there are also moral laws. Ceremonial laws for ancient Israel. Moral laws for all people all through the centuries. Laws that prohibit lying and stealing and murder. Laws that promote honoring mother and father, caring for the poor, and so on. Now the question is, you know, is this prohibition against homosexuality in Leviticus, is it one of those ceremonial laws for ancient Israel, no longer for us today? Or is it one of those moral laws that's timeless for everybody? The vast majority of Bible scholars, very few exceptions, would say this is obviously a moral law. I mean, for one thing, when you look at it in the context, it's surrounded by a clump of other moral laws that regulate sexual behavior, that prohibit stuff like adultery and bestiality and incest and homosexuality is thrown right into the midst of them. For, for, for another reason, look at the penalty in ancient Israel, the penalty was, was death. This is the severe sort of penalty that was only attached to the moral laws. You're not going to be, be put to death for eating shellfish, one of those ceremonial laws. So when you look at the Old Testament, these verses in Leviticus, the Old Testament clearly prohibits basic homosexual practices. Now let's go to the New Testament. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1, okay? Romans chapter 1. And while you're flipping to Romans 1, you may note that in going from Leviticus to Romans, we skipped over the first few books of the New Testament, the Gospels, which are the biographies of Jesus' life and ministry. And you may have heard someone say, well, you know, Jesus never condemns homosexuality. In fact, Jesus never says a word about homosexuality. Is that why we're skipping the Gospels? Because Jesus is cool with it? And if if homosexuality wasn't a big deal to Jesus, maybe it shouldn't be a big deal to us. There, there's a problem with that argument, actually three problems. Problem number one is Jesus very clearly affirms in the Gospels the fact that a sexual relationship is to be between a man and a woman who are committed in a marriage relationship. It's Matthew 19, verses 4 to 6. You can look it up yourself. In fact, Jesus, what he does is he quotes the Genesis passages that we looked at earlier. This is God's creation design. 
I mean, once you've said that sex is, be, is to be between a man and a woman, you, you don't have to prohibit homosexuality. You've said it all. Second reason Jesus doesn't say anything about it is he was a Jewish rabbi. And so he was in full accord with the Old Testament commands. You know, they were a given for Jesus. And let me remind you, Jesus was never shy about disagreeing with some religious tradition if he thought the religious tradition was wrong. You'll never find him disagreeing with the prohibition against homosexuality. A third reason that I, I say the argument here is problematic is because there are any number of sins that Jesus isn't recorded in the Gospels as denouncing, okay? He doesn't say anything about incest, doesn't say anything about rape, doesn't say anything about drunkenness, didn't need to say anything about them, again, because they're covered in the Old Testament. So now we're in Romans. Romans is written by the Apostle Paul. Let me pick it up at verse 21. It says, although people knew about God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Now listen. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, once again, this passage seems pretty straightforward in its condemnation of homosexual practices. I mean, how can pro-gay interpreters explain it away? four arguments. Let me give you their four arguments. And again, you're going to run into these. Argument number one, some say that Paul is dealing here in Romans 1 with an abusive form of homosexuality, probably man-boy relationships. In other words, exploitive sex. And that kind of homosexuality was fairly popular in Paul's day, but that's not what Paul's talking about in Romans 1. And the reason Bible scholars say we, we know that's not what he's talking about is because in verse 26, he's clearly talking about female homosexual relationships, lesbianism. And in verse 27, when he talks about gay relations between men, it's a mutually consenting sort of relationship. They're, they're filled with lust, passion for each other. This is not about men exploiting boys. This is about men involved in a relationship with each other as their own choice. Again, we're talking about generic homosexuality. Second argument. Some say that when Paul condemns men and women, look at verses 26 and 27. When he condemns men and women who give up natural sexual relations, see the word natural, for unnatural ones, he's warning people to stay true to their personal sexual nature. You following this? So if you're a heterosexual, it would be wrong for you to engage in homosexual relations. If you're 
orientation is homosexual, it would be wrong for you to engage in heterosexual relations. It would be unnatural. Avoid the unnatural. Is that the straightforward reading of the, of the text? We just read it. You know, the fact of the matter is the word natural here doesn't mean be true to yourself, your own nature. The word natural refers to natural in terms of God's created design, nature. Okay, so, so, so God has created heterosexual complementarity, wired it into us. Paul says don't leave that path for another path. Third argument. Some say that Paul is condemning the sort of homosexuality that was associated with idolatry in his day. In Paul's day, if you went to a pagan temple, you know, you could pay offering, you could give an offering and have sex with a temple prostitute, a homosexual temple prostitute. And some say, well, that's what Paul's talking about here because in the context he mentions idolatry a couple of times. He speaks of people who've exchanged worship of God for the worship of images made in human likeness and in the likeness of animals. Paul says, don't do that. And then he talks about homosexuality. So are the two related? Is he condemning homosexuality in the context of pagan temple worship? Again, Bible scholars say no because, for one thing, he talks about lesbianism, verse 26. For, for, for another, another thing, he's talking about consenting relationships with a man and another man who have a passion for each other. This is not a pagan worshiper with a temple prostitute. Again, this is generic homosexuality. You say, well, then why does Paul bring up the topic of idolatry? It's a great question. As an analogy. What's his analogy? When he talks about idolatry, what he says about idolatry is it's inexcusable. Why is it inexcusable? Because, Paul says, the truth is so obvious. You ought to be, be able to look at creation around you and conclude it takes an awesome God to make all this. Okay, some stupid idol didn't make it. Paul says by way of analogy, his argument is when, when you look at the way people are made, the truth ought to be obvious. The complementary body parts, the corresponding parts that fit together, the fact that it takes a man and a woman to procreate, to bear a child. I mean, it's the truth is as obvious as the truth about God creating the universe. That's Paul's argument here. Fourth argument. Some say that Paul's, or objection, some say that Paul's view of homosexuality as expressed in, in Romans 1 just doesn't take into account the loving, monogamous, homosexual relationships that some people engage in today. See, now, all Paul knew about was dirty homosexuality. You know, he didn't know about the, the wholesome version of homosexuality that we now see examples of, you know, in our culture. This is probably the argument that I hear most often against the Bible's prohibition of homosexual practices. People say, well, you know, the Bible condemns bad homosexuality. But the ancient writers, they didn't know about good homosexuality. See, I know this gay couple, and they are in a loving, monogamous relationship. Well, I know couples like that, too. And that's commendable that it's loving and monogamous. So is that the problem Paul just didn't know about this? 
Let me respond to that in two ways. First, in the words of one Bible scholar, he writes, Are we to believe that nobody with homosexual or lesbian urges in all of antiquity was able to provide a healthy example of same-sex love? In fact, moving statements about the compassionate and beautiful character of same-sex love can be found in Greco-Roman literature. Another Bible scholar writes, and since Paul was well-educated and well-read, he would have been quite familiar with the vast homosexual literature of the Hellenistic world in which tender, committed, nurturing, homoerotic love was celebrated. Paul knew about loving, homosexual, monogamous, homosexual relationships, but he still wrote what he wrote in Romans 1. Now, here's something else to consider. What makes a sexual relationship right for the Apostle Paul and for the rest of the Bible is not simply that it takes place in a loving, monogamous context. Now, who would argue against loving and monogamous? Of course, they're important. But a sexual relationship is only right, according to Scripture, if it takes place with a person of the opposite sex in a committed marriage. That's what God spells out from the opening chapter of the Bible on, which means, now listen, which means if you're single and you're having sex with another single person that you're, you're, you're dating and it's a loving, monogamous relationship, the Bible still says it's wrong. It calls it sexual immorality. The old English word in the King James Version was fornication because that's not God's creation design. You know, I've explained to people before, sexuality is like the glue of a marriage relationship. You, you glue yourself, super glue yourself together with somebody else, and you pull it apart and super glue with somebody else and pull it apart and super glue, and you tear yourself up. It, it means that a sexual relationship with a person who's currently married to somebody else, even if they're getting a divorce... Okay, even if they're no longer having sex with their spouse and you're no longer having sex with your spouse, so that it's a loving homosexual, excuse me, a loving monogamous relationship with this person who's married to someone else, the Bible calls it wrong. It calls it adultery. What this means is that a sexual relationship with a member of your family, a dad with a daughter, a brother with a sister, even if you can convince yourself that it's loving and monogamous, is wrong. The Bible calls it incest. This means that a sexual relationship with a naked lady whose picture you see on a porn site and masturbate to, even if you can convince yourself that it's loving and monogamous, it's wrong because the Bible calls it lust. And it means that a sexual relationship with a person of the same gender, even if it's loving and monogamous, is wrong. The Bible calls it homosexuality. Please, and I especially beg of you, you younger people, because you're getting bombarded with this argument today. Loving and monogamous don't make it right. Now, this is where we're going to leave God's big story today. What a horrible place to stop. I watched part two of the three-part Hobbit series this last week. 
You know, it's just come out on DVD now, so our family was watching The Desolation of Smog. You know, two and a half hours into the movie, it just ends abruptly. Right in the middle of the story, you've got to wait to December for the final installment. And so it drops things off, and there's this fire-breathing dragon smog making trouble. There are gruesome orcs rampaging. There is a wicked necromancer named Soren who is gaining power, and the story ends. Unfortunately, I've read the book. <laughs> so, so I know the story ends well. Now, I am leaving you hanging today, but if you've read God's book, you know the story ends well. I've only taken you through the first half of God's big story, and we, we've learned regarding homosexuality, it's not part of God's creation design, and the Bible categorizes homosexual practices as sinful. But friends, this means that people, people here today, people at our four campuses who are struggling with same-sex attraction, guess what? You are candidates for God's grace, just like with the rest of us garden variety sinners. All right? I hope... I pray that Christ Community Church is the place where we could be real about our struggles. You know, especially in the context of a community group. If you can't say, I struggle with anger, or I struggle with materialism, or I struggle with same-sex attractions, what? Come on. We, we, will, we will never fully appreciate God's grace as something amazing until we understand how desperately we need it, every single one of us. You know, next week we get to the good part of the story, redemption, restoration for all who surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. You know, I'm going to be interviewing a young man. We're going to cover redemption and restoration in the context of an interview with, with a young man for whom same-sex attractions have been a huge part of his life. And so it's going to be a frank, honest discussion. But he has surrendered to Jesus. Jesus is his Savior and King. And he's experienced redemption and the beginning of a restoring work in his life. You can experience it as, as well. If you don't know how to surrender to Christ, I don't care whether you're a struggle with same-sex attraction or just some other variety of sin, which we all struggle with. You know, we would love to help you begin a relationship with Christ. Stop at the Welcome Center at any one of our campuses today and say, okay, I heard the bad part of the story. I don't identify with the particular sin, but I do recognize a need for a relationship with Christ. How do I begin that? We would love to tell you. The Welcome Center. Or just stop by the information counter because you're going to go there anyway and pick up my notes on the objections to the Bible as a textbook on homosexuality. And uh, you know, stop there and ask for a God's good news. And it'll get you all the way to the good news part. Okay, You could read it before next week. Now, I'm going to ask the campus pastors at the other campuses to close in a word of prayer as I close in prayer, prayer here at Christ Community Church St. Charles. So would you stand together with me and let's bow in prayer. I'll just remind you, we got prayer team members on the far side of the railings after the service. I don't see them there yet, but they'll be there quickly. After the service, 
if uh, you've got anything going on in your life you'd like prayer for, that's what they're there for. There'll be numerous people on both sides. I'll be up front. If I can uh, speak to you, pray for you, be happy to do it. If you've got a question that requires a long answer, you know, especially with a subject like this, I'll probably be brief with you uh, just because we'll need to keep things, uh, things moving. Okay, let me close in prayer. If you're a guest, by the way, Welcome Center is in the back corner here. And we, we love everybody who's come as a guest. Just introduce yourself. We got some information about the church we'd love to give you back there in the Welcome Center. Lord God, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for your design and how you made us. We, we don't want to gloss over the fact that for every one of us who've experienced the pull of sin, We've seen the sinful nature at work in our lives. Whatever the sin, it's a struggle. It's not something to be said of, well, you know, just pray about it and it'll go away. And so I, I would ask you that those who are in the thick of a struggle right now, that you bring them back for the next couple of weeks, God, until they get some answers and some help from you, from your word. Thank you for your great love for us. Please make us a church that's open and honest and accepting and willing to talk about stuff we're struggling with. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.